Legal Hour on Drive Live. That's right. It is the legal hour and Ludmilla Yamalova is with us, of uh, managing partner, of course, of HPR Yamalova and Plevka. Warm welcome to you as always, Ludmilla. Great to have you with us. Great to be here. Uh, questions are flooding in as they always do. We're going to get to some of those very, very soon. I wanted to start, though, with a story that you'd uh, spotted um, over the last few days. It's been uh, in, in the media um, and it's to do with... Um, uh, these direct selling uh, system, uh, what, what would you call it, direct selling uh, projects, people get caught up in and seem, in, according to this article, to lose out financially with. First of all, what are they and, and are they always dodgy? Uh, not necessarily. So in so simple terms, the direct selling is a scheme, is a marketing uh, structure where, for example, let's say I sell certain goods and I in- incentivize you to help me sell those goods and you will get a commission from every sale that you make. Uh, so that's in very simple terms, that's what direct selling is. Now, the UAE and Dubai in particular, and the story we're talking about actually relates to Dubai. Dubai actually has a direct selling association or agency. And um, so that particular activity is licensed and is not illegal. However, as any licensing agency, there are certain regulations and um, and requirements that, um, that go into becoming uh, a re- registered direct selling company. And as part of that, the direct selling agency works works also with DED and whatever other uh, companies that or free zones that license um, similar companies. So it's, it's a fairly elaborate licensing project or, or process. And in fact, there is a website and a list of companies that are currently legally licensed as direct selling companies. And so if anybody who wants to do, who wants to learn about direct selling and wants to get involved with direct selling, um, certainly needs to review that website and find out who those companies are. Because at this point, I think there are only 11 companies that are uh, lawfully uh, doing this sort of business. Now, that's just in terms of what direct selling is and, and, and whether it's legal or not. In terms of how it works, um, uh, worked in this particular scheme, and that is investors or just unaware public or people of the public became, um, uh, I guess, introduced to this idea of, well, you can sit at home and just supplement your income, but basically just introducing uh, our product to the, the kind of down, down the chain. And so in so you get money for each introduction that you make. Right. But the problem is you often have to pay money to take part. Indeed. So, yes. So as part of this particular scheme, you don't always have to do that as part of if it's a proper direct selling scheme. But in this particular case, there was a joining fee and joining fee, at least in, in cases of some people, was 10,000 dirhams. And some a lot of people who were interested in doing this for them, 10,000 dirhams is a lot of money and they actually had to borrow money and a lot of them uh, took um, credit card loans just to be able to join. And the idea is that I guess the promise was that you can, um, you put you put in 10,000 and then on every introduction that you make, you'll make uh, whatever percentage is, let's say 1,200 dirhams. And these are sort of the actual amounts that at least were stated in the uh, news articles and so on and so forth. So every introduction you make and therefore if you're going to do simple calculation, it sounded like a very good deal and you could actually, uh, you can recover your 10,000 and make many times over that. Yeah, I mean, and this guy thought he was going to make 2.3 million dirhams and he lost 10,000. But, you know, it feels like people taking advantage of, of those that just might not be aware of, uh, of Indeed. what's possible. Well, in this case in particular, but because it, the, the emphasis here was so much more about the joining fee than actually selling the product. And then usually that's your giveaway, that the focus is not so much on actually doing the business, but rather trying to gather the money to get people to join in this this structure so and as a as a as a just general comment i'd like to make and that is 
whenever something sounds too good to be true, it just is too good to be true. It's very few people actually succeed in making a lot of money from the comfort of their home in a very short period of time. <laughs> Otherwise, and we'd all do it, right? Indeed. <laughs> and the majority of us, it's just, it, it, takes, it, it takes effort and time to actually earn money. So if something sounds too good to be true, such as making $112,000 a week, apparently some of the, these are some of the representations, it's, it's just not, it's not realistic. Now, I understand it's, it's a very lucrative idea and it's very appealing. And in fact, there are a number of conferences and and apparently still workshops that are being held around Dubai introducing this direct scheme uh, and marketing and and therefore obviously people are going in and learning and, and getting very excited and so and, I and the problem is with these well, um, you know it's easy to say w- when something's too good to be true don't trust it but the selling process is so elaborate and they really do kind of, you know, they bring you in and they take you into these meetings and conferences and whatever. They and, train you, and don't they? And they train you up and, and they make it look like, oh, so many people are already doing this. Yeah, so right. it's not just this one person that they're targeting. They make it look like it's a huge network of people who are already successful and they're already in there. So you're just going to be one of many. You're absolutely right. And these workshops, public workshops and, and seminars and conferences are not helping because they do create the impression that this is all legitimate mm-hmm. and that uh, you, they, there's, you actually stand a chance to, to earn money. So you're absolutely right. Uh, and so my... And, and these kind of structures or schemes, if you will, they will pop up every so often, and they do around the world. And once the regulators understand or catch on to them, new regulations will be introduced and new enforcements will be introduced. And so, and, and this will go away, something else will come back. So you will never be able to fully protect uh, the unaware. But my just the general advice, how you, one can protect. I mean, number one, I would say that when something sounds too good to be true, I mean, do pause before you, uh, before you get involved. Number Number two, anytime you you give away money or you part with your money, I mean, just think many, many times over and make sure that you have proper documentation to support that exchange of money. And that's that's the one thing that I can I cannot emphasize over and over enough, only because even if you get trapped in one of these fraudulent schemes, if you have the documentation to support your uh, your transaction, you will always be able to file at least a claim against that party and potentially recover at least a portion of it. That's one. And two, and most likely, if you actually are diligent about trying to get the documentation along the way, you will most likely, chances are that along the way, you'll figure out that something is not right because things are not adding up. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's, once again, this is what we talked about last week show because there have been a number of fraudulent schemes in the real estate sector recently and there have been another report a few other reports in the last week about partnership schemes and employee um, fraud so these things happen all the time so my recommendation is just pause and make sure you do your due diligence and that all that means is right ask the right questions get the paperwork and document every transaction make, keep copies of everything that um, that you sign and and certainly when you give money make sure that your money goes in the right hands and then that you're getting a receipt from that person and check as well the company is registered on this direct selling association uh, list as you said uh, Ludmila. Um, you know these kind of schemes often because they're direct selling so People are selling to their family, to their friends as well. So you're more likely to trust your friends and to trust your family and to kind of everybody just get sucked in. So it's just, 
it's an ongoing thing. And you're right. And this is why anything to do with financial investments, and this would qualify as one, is regulated by by different authorities or it, it requires secondary approvals. Mm. And so this is just one another example. For any company to do this kind of scheme, they need to be properly licensed. And, and that's for a reason, for that very reason, because it's very easy to get trapped in that kind of a family emotional dynamic because of the, of the nature of this scheme. And so this is where you need regulators to come in and make sure that they vet the companies that should do this to ensure that uh, because of the vulnerability of, uh, of consumers in this regard, um, that at least the companies are legitimate. No matter your preferred communication, stay in touch with Drive Live only on Dubai Eye 103.8. Legal Hour on Drive Live. It is the legal hour. We are in conversation with Ludmila Yamalova, managing partner at Yamalova and Plevka, of course, and taking your questions uh, this evening. Uh, lots of them coming in, Sally. What have we got? Okay, Mark says, hello, if I want to send a notice to my tenant through the notary public, can I send it to his office address or do I have to send it to the residential address stated on the tenancy contract, how does this work? A great, uh, great question. Also, also because it's timely, uh, and it is because the practice regarding notice has changed in the last um, several months. Now, what Mark is referring to, and that is under the Dubai rental laws, whether uh, whether the notice to evict a tenant, ultimately the eviction notice, needs to be uh, sent to the tenant directly uh, through the notary or uh, to any other address. Now. It used to be about a year ago and for many years before then that the requirement of a notice of eviction had to be done through the notary public. And any other notice of um, any kind, if it was not sent to the notary public and wasn't sent through the, through the proper means, uh, that was not valid. That is no longer the case. Now, the rent committee now uh, will look at any kind of proof that the actual person who is supposed to be the recipient of this notice actually has received the notice. So it's no longer required to, for example, send it even through the notary public. And therefore, by, and it's by the same, uh, the, in, the, in the same spirit, you don't really need, it doesn't matter which address you send it to as long as the actual recipient of that notice has received the notice. And obviously, for, for that, you need some kind of documentation to show that that person has received the notice. And that can come in many different ways. Email, as long as you have proof that the notice was received by email or any other kind of correspondence, and it could even be email correspondence, that acknowledges the receipt of that notice. Now, the rent committee now looks at all that proof as sufficient uh, evidence that the notice had been properly not so much served but received and so this is quite a departure from the previous practice and you will not see it it hasn't been updated in the laws or such it's it's just been a practice that has um, developed through the rent committee in the last several months and i think that's a very welcome change because at the end of the day what we care about and what the judges care about is that the actual person was properly informed and so now the uh, in in that spirit the the judges are moving away from the very formalistic requirement and now just looking more at the actual intent and the actual results what about a whatsapp notice you get the two blue lines to see that somebody has read your message does that work great question and certainly it could be presented as evidence and it will just be up to the judge to ultimately decide whether that particular whatsapp notice uh, with the little two blue lines is sufficient mm. uh, and uh, and that will be for the other side to counter that they actually somehow received that notice uh, but remember it's not just the it's just not just not just the words that hey I'm evicting you. It there actually has to be an actual notice that has the the yeah, requisite yeah. language in if the notice itself. If you put the itself. whole thing in there, 
into yeah. one message. You certainly you certainly can, right? Yeah. Because if you actually if you have a PDF or uh, or even a JPEG file and you send it off through WhatsApp and you have the two blue lines, well, it's then the burden will be on the other side to prove that they did not receive something. It it sounds like a dumb question, but I feel like more and more we're doing things on things like WhatsApp on social media. We have the President of the United States announcing national policy on Twitter. So like yeah, so I just feel like this can happen. You know, sometimes people do things and, and you just wonder. Indeed, and, and they do, as you said, rightfully said, they do this much more so um, than they used to even yesterday uh, and you, even at that level. So, and the courts here and the legal system here, just like the rest of the world, we're, we are progressing and moving along with the development of technology. And if just a few years ago, there was a big question mark as to, that, as to whether that kind of evidence could be presented in court and would be uh, sufficient based on how the laws are drafted right now, well, today it's no longer a question. The courts will look at any kind of information, and we ourselves have presented WhatsApp messages, SMS messages, uh, any sort of email address or email messages or correspondence, including email addresses, uh, to the courts, and as long as they're legally translated, uh, they they are viewed as admissible evidence along with everything else. Uh, We've got another one here from uh, Tariro asking, I've moved into a new building and I'm failing to get Ijari. The reason is because the building isn't registered in the system. The agent doesn't know anything. Please advise. It's a tough one to be honest with you. And I have to be frank, I haven't really heard of of a building not being registered with a jury system and therefore not being able to register a jury contract. That's not to say that these incidents not happen. I just personally have not heard. Now, what I recommend to do is, number one, make sure that you have a copy of the title deed. And it may be that the building is owned, the entire building is owned by one owner and you don't have a title deed for individual units. So uh, be as, as it may, you need to make sure that you get a copy of the title deed. If you have a copy of the title deed, then you can go to the land department and you get whatever the supporting documents you may need to register that with a jury and ultimately if you have a title deed for a property that exists and it's registered under under the Dubai Land Department, it's not possible that Jerry will not register it. They don't necessarily need to have the building registered. They can just use the title deed uh, to register this. But to be honest with you, again, I haven't dealt with this exact uh, exact incident. I just, I would imagine that if you have the right documentation, you may be able to overcome this. But it is important to get a Jari. I mean, maybe we could just clear that up. Why do I need it? Yes, because as of just a few weeks ago, uh, Ijari is now required to register with Diwa. And obviously, we all need Diwa to be able to move in. Um, so, And this is actually in, important because we're hearing more and more uh, ways where, for example, p- places are sublet or there's some kind of issues with a landlord and tenants are being encouraged. Well, you don't worry, you can stay in the, in the property in the meantime and, and so on, unless you're getting evicted. Well, legally speaking, and in some ways even practically, you may be able, at least in the, in the past, you would have been able to do that. But now, if you want to have electricity and water, you need to have to be registered with with Diwa, and therefore you need that consent from whoever the ultimate owner of the property is. So, it's no longer possible to kind of walk around, you know, operate outside the lines. Uh, and um, I think that's going to be the way of the future. So, mm. once again, before you sign any documents, make sure that you have all the documentation in place, and make sure that the money is going in the right hands. Let's uh, uh, tackle this one now if we can, uh, Ludmilla. I think a lot of people are going to prick up their ears when they hear about this question. It's about illegal downloading. Um, 
It says, hello, I recently saw a story in the paper regarding downloading content through Torrent. As of my knowledge, 90% of people download movies here, and I wanted to know what the legal implications here in the UAE are. And, and this question is spot on, really, at this time of year. A lot of people hibernating indoors, downloading series and movies. And, Game of Thrones. And think, uh, Game of Thrones, exactly, came out just the other week. It's, again, the most downloaded ever. Um, and... We all think to ourselves, well, everyone else does it, so what's the problem? Well, it's not going to be an easy answer, and it's probably not going to be an answer that most would want to hear. But legally speaking, if it, it may violate a number of laws. Uh, now, and that's just legal speaking. In practical terms, as, as you rightfully said, so many of us do it. I'm not saying I am one just because I don't watch TV. <laughs> so, uh, but, but just because so many of us are doing does not necessarily mean that in practical terms, these laws are being enforced. But the question is about the legal standing of, of this practice. So I'll answer it from the legal perspective, though, with that caveat that in practical terms, everybody's doing and nobody so far that we know of, at least publicly, has gotten into trouble. Um, but obviously, this is just a matter of time. And it's also a matter of extent. So if it's just an individual every so often, for any law to come into effect, it has to be enforced. And and that means there has to be somebody out there either policing and and then ultimately uh, reporting and investigating the issue. So... It's the authorities are not interested in, in in investigating all of us, but it's just a matter of time before you know it, all it takes is one. Um, so legally speaking, can violate a number of laws. One is the copyright law, and that's the federal law, two thousand two, uh, number seven of two thousand two, and that talks about protection of obviously uh, intellectual property and any kind of content, authored uh, books and musical and films and so on and so forth. So. And anything that's unauthorized um, and any kind of use of an unauthorized copyright uh, then obviously is in violation of that particular law. Now, this law is uh, is civil law, so the remedies here would be civil. So, for example, if I knew that um, I, let's say, I was talented and I created a song and, and I could see and I could trace somehow that others are using my song and not paying their, their royalties, um, then I could bring under this law a case and ask for compensation. So this is what this particular law is. It's, it's, mo- it's more about monetary compensation. And it would be acted upon in particular by networks, right? Network, networks is, it's, let's face it, it's not usually the individuals, not the authors themselves that benefit from these laws. It's, by, it's from the, the commercial establishments that buy out the rights. And so they're the ones who usually act on this. Uh, so one, this use of torrent, if, it is, if, if, if using torrent to download content uh, that would otherwise... Uh, come through different channels, for example, that would require you a subscription or a payment. Uh, so therefore, you're avoiding you, uh, paying that. And, and, and the fact that there, there's networks that are pay, paid networks that offer that content means that they are the ones who have the right to distribute that content. So if you're going around that particular network, it means that you're basically avoiding paying that fee and therefore they're losing out on that um, on that fee and therefore you're distributing or using content that's not um, that's not authorized so that would be in the violation of the copyright law the other one is the cyber law and that's also the federal law that was introduced originally in 2002 and then it was amended in 2012 or 2006 and then amended in 2012 and that law in particular actually assigns two types of penalties 
unlike the copyright law that only deals with with civil penalties and therefore monetary compensation, the cyber law does both. It has monetary penalties and imprisonment. So it's so it has criminal implications as well. And there are a number of uh, provisions in in the law itself, and it's just too long for me to kind of cite the, this, the relevant provisions. But there are a number of provisions that actually suggest that any kind of unauthorized access to a website or any kind of content actually would be in violation of the cyber law and would it would um, result in imprisonment anywhere from up to six months uh, or uh, and um, and and financial penalties anywhere from two hundred thousand dirhams to a million dirhams but you've so, not heard of anybody getting caught for downloading an episode of Game of Thrones, for example, I have that not. hasn't happened right. here. I have not, and that's why I said I started out with legally you speaking, <laughs> this is not. But practically speaking, how many cases we have heard? I mean, we'll hear of something like this when, for example, it's it's a it's a big it's a big um, transaction where a network, for example, realizes that a certain that they're losing a certain uh, revenue stream because of this. But the the, the Probably the biggest difficulty with something like this is how do, because a lot of these content providers, so these websites, they're not based in the UAE. So how do you enforce the UAE law mm. against a company that's based um, elsewhere? Mm. So that's the kind of the practical, uh, the practical issue. And, um, you know, and that's why, what, for example, uh, regulators and, and um, uh, do in the United States, I mean, they don't, they just, they look for that one example just to teach the public. So well, they will go just sa- same thing with, for example, the tax authorities. They'll go against that one person just to teach a lesson to everybody else mm. because they know that going after everybody else is not commercially feasible. Yeah, interesting topic. Uh, lots of questions coming in. We'll do a uh, quick fire with uh, Ludmilla next here on The Legal Hour. We want to hear from you. Find us on Facebook. Tweet at Dubai Eye 1038 FM. 4001 if you'd like to send your question. You've got a few more minutes. You might get it answered. We've got lots to get through. We're going to try and fire through some of these, uh, Ludmilla. We had a phone call, actually. Um, Didn't want the name mentioned, but uh, uh, here's the question. Uh, When I was hired, I signed only an offer letter. I never actually signed a contract. Um, Now I'd like to switch jobs. Um, Do they have to, do I still have to give a three-month notice, even though I didn't sign a contract? Okay, well, there's uh, several layers to this. Number one, the three-month notice if it's in the notice if it's in the offer letter um, and um, then it may be you may have to abide by it Uh, number two just because you did not sign an employment contract but if you actually worked for the company then there should be an employment contract you might not remember signing it one or two and we have seen this more than once uh, where for example the PRO of that company would actually go and register the contract without the employee's knowledge we have seen the kind of practice so but uh, be it as it may there is an employment contract that is registered to you if you are obviously been working um, so it's not going to just to be the, no, uh, the offer letter there will always be an, uh, an agreement unless obviously you want to switch jobs before you've even started working but it doesn't like, it sound like this is the case so let's say if you so there is there's an employment agreement so now that you need to get a copy of that agreement and if you have and you need to review the notice period in that agreement. If it says three months and you have the offer letter also three months and you're bound to three months. Uh, but again, bound to does not mean that you necessarily have to serve the three months. You may want to leave early, but in that case, um, the law provides that you need to compensate the company um, up to a month and a half. Uh, so of your, uh, so you would have to pay them a month and a half of salary, not the full three months. 
so uh, now if there's a discrepancy in the agreements for the for example the uh, the offer letter says three months and the and the, um, the employment agreement says one month the in that case the judge or the courts will look at the agreement that's more, more favorable to the employee so in that case let's say if you want to only serve one month it w- the one month would prevail okay all right, another one uh, that came in by uh, text 4001. I heard a rumor that one day soon gratuity will be paid on full wages and not just basic wages. True or just a rumor? I, I have not heard that rumor and I would not rely on it uh, because whenever the laws are amended, we cannot uh, rely on anything until actually they have been published in the official gazette and there has not been anything to that effect. However, I do think that this, this so-called rumor might be referring to something else and that is how the end of service or the gratuity is calculated in, in practical terms. So that is in, let's say, if, if the case uh, goes to court and that is... Um, in fact, it's not just, well, it's about the definition of the basic seller. It's still calculated on the basic salary because that's how the law is drafted. Uh, and so, but the basic salary, the law separates basic salary and all other allowances. So what, um, how the courts translate that or interpret that is that they will add to basic salary any payments of commissions and bonuses because those are not allowances. So this is what the courts have always done. Mm. And yet a lot of the employees and, and, and similar employers, companies, have not been aware not of that for it. many, many yeah. years. Uh, but so that's probably what this so-called rumor is referring to. And that is that, the ba- that in the calculation of gratuity, it's not just the basic or the basic salary is considered to encompass any kind of commissions and bonuses and raises. Mm. Uh, uh, Yes, sorry, sorry, Claire. Just another question while while we're on the gratuities, um, asking if end-of-service benefit gratuity after five years for an uh, unlimited contract is for 21 days for all of the five years or only 21 days for those years after five years? It's 21 days for the first five years. After five years, it's 30 days for every year. There you go. That's a quick answer. Um, this one from uh, an employer, uh, which uh, uh, why I want to ask this one, because we often hear from employees who don't know what to do on this show, uh, on this program. Um, we have referred one of our employees to the police for fraud. Um, the case is open. Progress is very slow. Uh, and in the meantime, we have suspended the employee while the police uh, make a decision and look into it. Do we have to still pay them a salary during this time? Okay, so this is a loaded question as well. So, number one, yes, uh, in the short, you have to pay the salary because the law uh, requires that people are compensated for the work that they put in. Now, if you're challenging the uh, uh, the quality of that work, then that's a separate case that you would bring under after that uh, against that employee in court, uh, requiring compensation or requesting compensation. But you cannot just withhold sa- uh, salary. That's one. Number two. And this is, and the law is very clear about this, the law in particular, the courts. Uh, and that is just because you refer a case to the police does not mean that that particular employee is actually guilty. So until you have a final judgment that the employee is guilty, um, therefore, then that in- employee is otherwise basically entitled to whatever, um, to, to the normal uh, in- entitlements. Uh, however, so what, what worries me in this particular question is that the, the word suspended. So if you just suspended the employee, uh, then you run the risk that, that employee will be considered to have been under your employee this whole time. So my recommendation is just terminate the employee uh, and then and you tr- terminate for cause, but be prepared that you may have to pay the arbitrary dismissal because termination for cause actually requires, in technical terms, uh, proof in, this, in these kinds of cases because you, you, you will be terminated for cause because you um, believe that they have defrauded the company. So, But in that case, it requires actually a final court judgment. But you still should suspend or not suspend, the terminate the employee 
employee for cause and then wait until you have the final court judgment to decide whether you need to pay arbitrary dismissal or not. Yeah, because basically if you don't win the fraud case or they're found not guilty, they've got a case against you then. Correct. Yes. I mean, and th- and this is, let's, 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 be realistic. I mean, this is fair because it's so easy for companies or for anyone to accuse somebody of fraud or embezzlement. And I'm not saying these are not as, as unsubstantiated claims, but the courts and the laws are there to try to protect um, the parties from abuse. And so until you have a court uh, decision that, that declares that employee guilty, um, then you, 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 know, it's, you cannot act the arbit- as an arbiter of, of their guilt. But it's obvious in practical terms that you no longer trust that employee. So my advice is just terminate immediately and just but be prepared at the very worst is to pay for the arbitrary dismissal for termination without cause or without having properly no, uh, provided the proper notice there's uh, one here asking uh, uh, if I'm a private sector sector free zone employee and I'm fired not due to performance but due to the situation of the company what am I entitled to do well, it doesn't matter whether you're a private sector or government employee. Uh, it's basically the benefits more or less are the same, though government employees uh, tend to have a little uh, more generous benefits. Uh, so a company can terminate an employee at any point in time for any reason, and it just becomes a matter of compensation. How much do they owe you for terminating prematurely? Uh, and uh, if it, it and much depends whether it's a limited contract or unlimited contract. So if it's an unlimited contract and you're being terminated prematurely, then the company can only do so if if the reason for termination was attributable to you as an employee. Well, that doesn't sound like this is the case. But I will tell you, even in the unlimited contracts, courts are quite um, favorable in terms of uh, in favor of employees because they still want for the reason for termination to be attributed to the employee. So unless it's a proper redundancy and proper redundancy meaning the company is closing down or they're closing down the department uh, so it cannot be attributable to the company if it is attributable to the company it's really not the employee's fault and and the logic goes is why should you penalize an employee if it's the company that either mismanaged its business uh, or cha- had a change of, of mind uh, so therefore in that case it would be you'd be entitled to arbitrary dismissal and by the way just as a quick comment in any kind of dismissal unfair or any other dismissal the maximum you can get is three months of full salary as arbitrary dismissal. You've got to answer this one in a minute if you can, uh, Ludmilla. We're running out of time as usual. Um, I work in semi-government company. My employer uh, decided to terminate me after eight months. Human Resources told me I'm not entitled to compensation because I didn't get confirmation, a confirmation letter in writing after my probation. And that's incorrect. Uh, uh, by law and by, um, and by case law, uh, your probation is confirmed unless it's terminated, unless your terminated uh, probation is confirmed. And any kind of writing that requires you to confirm that in writing, uh, otherwise probation is extended, is invalid. So, so therefore, absolutely, it's fairly black and white as far as the legal practice is concerned. You have been confirmed, and so you will be entitled to, uh, to your salary and then whatever notice period you have in your contract, but you will not be entitled to end of benefits because you didn't work for a year. Well done. Good speedy answer. <laughs> Hope that helps. As usual, we have run out of time. Um, thank you so much for all your questions. Any that we didn't get to, we will roll over. I think you're back next week with us, are you, Ludmilla? Indeed, yes. So we'll ha- uh, hold those over and answer them then. Always a really popular hour. Thanks very much to Ludmilla Yamalava of HPL Yamalava and Plevka, of course, with us every Monday on Legal Hour.